If you win, hey, that's great. Don't go tweeting the Delos Dodds quote a million times. That's they will. <laughs> Which Dodds quote is that? Uh, uh, Texas's bad years are better than Missouri's good years. Welcome back to Zoology, a Mizzou Tigers podcast presented by Rock M Radio. I'm your host, Oscar Gamble. My co-hosts are Dan Keegan. Hey, that's me. And former Missouri football beat writer and Rock M Nation analyst, David Morrison. Oh, I'm an analyst now? Is that a new, uh, like, do I get a bump in pay for that? <laughs> Absolutely. It's it, The check's in the mail, man. All right, cool. And uh, joining us today to preview Missouri's bowl opponent is special guest Ian Boyd, who writes about college football X's and O's for SB Nation and about the Texas Longhorns for InsideTexas.com. I just got back from taking the kid to see Santa. It was just, he'd been excited up until, you know, you get in the line and then he sees the Santa. <laughs> and then just a sense of like dread just starts to yeah. creep over him. And by the time it's time to get over to the Santa, he's just full out panic. Yeah. <laughs> oh that, God, that this is real. That's a deviant. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I have many a picture of me screaming on Santa's lap. As a child, so I can understand. What did he ask for? Did he ask for Drew Locke to come back for a senior season? <laughs> My kid? Yeah, that's, that's what I'm asking for. Uh, no, he didn't. <laughs> we didn't. We didn't get that far. <laughs> My wife had to drag him just to be anywhere near Santa just to get a picture. <laughs> uh, so, Ian, you joined us this summer uh, to preview Missouri's work with the Baylor offense under uh, Josh Heupel. Uh, you predicted that Missouri would have one of the best offenses in the country. Uh, you were right. Uh, it did take about a month and a half to get there. Uh, so what did you see that helped keep Missouri's second half offensive explosion? Well, when I watched uh, the later games, I, I clued in on them a little bit just to have a sense of what Missouri was where, where they were at going into the bowl game. And it looked like the way it should, where they were just, you know, if uh, if an opponent put numbers in the box, then they would find the one-on-one match and then just throw a deep ball to that guy and then – if uh, the teams double covered the receivers, then they would just run downhill at people. And it was all working the way it should. Obviously, it worked because they just, you know, did it the, the right way and they were able to execute the key things. Early on in the year, I'm not sure what was going wrong. Um, I did notice that they switched out some of the linemen over the course of the year and got younger and fatter, which probably helped. Because, <laughs> um, I mean, like, the, a lot of the Baylor lines, they would just have, like, just massive people. And it would be like, if we get six in the box, then maybe we'll throw it. But if we get five in the box, then we're going to make you push up against this 340-pound dude 80 times a game and see how long you last. So it still looked like Missouri got that same kind of feature going. But I don't know. It, there was a lot of weird stuff around the program that just as an outsider, I was like wondering if there was some inner turmoil of some kind in the locker room or in the staff room or something. And of course, half the staff just left, and so that just makes you wonder even more. Uh, we have some pet theories here. You did mention uh, over the summer that uh, as long as Missouri's wideouts are winning those one-on-one battles, the offense would click. And to me, that was you know one of the biggest things in the second half uh, as uh, the young tight end Okwebenam emerged and, and uh, Emmanuel Hall at wideout uh, emerged. Uh, David has some pet theories about the the scheduling and things. You had a different conclusion. Oh well, for sure. I mean, you look at the. I mean, I looked at the schedule, and it's like, oh, they really picked it on. They picked it up right when they started playing blue blood programs that were close to, you know, tarring and firing their coaches and they were playing bad teams. So it, it seems undeniable that that was part of it, right? Well, you'd be surprised talking to some people how deniable it is. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I, that, I think the schedule had something to do with it, as I've enumerated many times on here. I also think I'm thinking about one-on-one matchups and winning those. I mean, inserting Emmanuel Hall for Demetrius Mason helped them immeasurably in that department because Demetrius Mason wasn't a deep play home run threat. He was like a wide receiver screen, maybe get 10 or 15 yards if he's lucky, you know, being shifty threat. Whereas Emmanuel Hall, as you saw down the last half of the season, could get open 50 yards down the field with regularity and then Drew Locke could just bomb it to him. And that's a much more uh, explosive (laughs) offensive option than Demetrius Mason was. So I think Emmanuel Hall getting into the lineup helped a lot. And then as Dan was talking about, Albert Okwebenam just – stepping out of the shadows. I don't know where what they were doing with him the whole first half of the season, but he obviously <laughs> uh, stepped up, from, I guess, 
targets and people looking at him in the second half of the season. And I remember after the one and three start, I had like I I came up with like five things that Mizzou can do to try to turn things around. And one of the one of the ills was the passing game is too predict or predictable. One of the solutions was throw it to the tight ends more, and they did that. And so I will take credit for Mizzou's turn. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. <David. laughs> <laughs> you look, looking at Emmanuel Hall's game log, um, he put up some just some zeros in the games where Missouri uh, scored no points, and then you see as soon as he starts getting catches, then you start seeing numbers like 30, 40, 50, 60 in the Missouri point column. So that seems like a solid, solid theory you have. So part of that was because the beginning of the year, Emmanuel Hall was, I guess, fighting a little bit of injury and was still trying to work his way back into the rotation. And then when he was healthy, um, basically that led to him taking the lead role and Demetrius Mason being dismissed from the team. But I also, I think uh, the biggest factor of Albert O.K.'s uh, tight end impact was, you know, he opened up the middle of the field. So it wasn't just a deep threat, a an outside, you know, Jamon Moore uh, threat and then, Running the ball, it was also Drew Locke had an option for not only in the middle of the field, but also in the red zone. So that was a big, I think that was a big part of uh, that uh, offensive turnaround. And that's a huge thing for this offense is uh, it's it's the most dangerous offense in the world on first and 10. And then it's uh, maybe not so dangerous on a predictable down uh, Texas had the same problem last year with the same system. They were like, um, I mean, their running back ran for 2,000 yards, but they were like uh, 31% on third down or something insane. When you say it's the most dangerous offense in the world on first and 10 because of the, the added threat of that quarterback run game? No, because um, so like on first and 10, the quarterback is just looking at where are your numbers? I'm going to send the ball wherever you don't, wherever you haven't set numbers, right? Right. So like I'm either throwing deep to this guy because you left him one on one, or I'm throwing deep to this guy, or I'm handing off because you left the box uh, undermanned. But on third and uh, two, even yeah, the other team is like, you're not going to take that deep shot probably because you need to pick right. up two yards, so you're going to run it. So now we're gonna we're just going to load the box and maybe play man coverage everywhere and load the box, and we're either going to dare you to take the shot on third and two, or you're going to have to execute your run game which is not designed to run against numbers right and it's the same thing in the red zone is that yeah because literally the offense is like we are going to take whatever option is there on first and 10 so we are actually going to make you defend the extreme stresses of the field right the deep shot or the a gap iso run or whatever when it's predictable then the offense is like put in a put in a box and the defense will just load up to take away whatever it is that the offense has to do yeah in the first half of the year that uh, Missouri struggled a lot in the red zone. Uh, really struggled finishing drives. <clears throat> in the second half of the season, we did see Drew Locke more being more and more willing to, you know, tuck the ball on some option plays and actually stress defenses in that way too, which wasn't happening in the first six weeks or so. Yeah, you need some kind of trump card for those situations, like you know, you know, the tight end that no one can cover because he's mm-hmm. too big, or the quarterback run game. Texas did that for the first half of the year last year. They would use a Tyrone swoops and the 18 wheeler package where they just load the field with blockers. I remember that it, uh, it stopped working as quite as much down the stretch. It was still working pretty well, but they just kind of gave up on it. And everyone was like, Oh, they figured it out. And it's like, no, no one really figured it out. They just, I mean, the staff was just kind of panicking at the end of the year. Cause the only players they trusted were getting hurt and everybody knew they were going to get fired. And I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's just a whole other story, but that's ancient history. Same, same, same dimensions, same issues, short yardage and red zone. So uh, I did a little statistical deep dive into Bill Connolly's numbers. You know, the godfather of college football statistics. Uh, so anybody listening to this is pretty familiar with Missouri's profile. They might not be familiar with, uh, you know, your Texas Longhorns profile. So uh, when Missouri has the ball, it seemed that statistically Texas would be susceptible to big plays in the passing game. Uh, in the red zone, they do seem to stiffen up, and they're one of the best in the country at not letting teams uh, finish drives. Uh, but to me, that says that uh, that Texas's biggest weakness, allowing those big plays, uh, plays right into Missouri's biggest strength in the passing game. I don't know if those numbers are going to bear out or not. Okay. Um, Texas had a lot of issues um, in the first half of the year 
with assignment busts in the secondary. And then with, um, they'd get into like some, they'd get hit with run pass conflicts with on, on like play action or option passes. And then they got gashed a couple times on those because either their players uh, didn't execute them properly or just couldn't execute them. And then at around the Oklahoma State game, Texas just like overhauled their philosophy on defense for stopping Big 12 defenses. And they started playing um, dime with two deep safeties all the time in a sort of a pseudo Tampa 2 coverage where instead of, you know, like in Tampa 2, like the middle linebacker drops in the deep middle, like Brian Urlacher back in the day. Right. They would park a safety, a big safety. They would use Deshaun Elliott usually. They would park him to where Urlacher might drop to, and they would start him there. And then he would read, pass a run, and if it was a run, he would fly downhill and be like a linebacker that the offense didn't account for in the blocking game. And if it was a pass, then he'd be like that deep middle robber, like the middle linebacker. So Oklahoma State's offense, I don't know how much you guys know about them. They're not the same uh, scheme as Missouri. Is this is this a, a veer and shoot offense? But they have kind of a similar uh, deal where they run the ball unless they see that you are start to sneak up and then they take deep shots. And so Texas was – and so like uh, it's like this whole new school of spread offenses where they're like really they want to throw the ball down the field. And they have all this uh, focus and intention on the run game but they don't actually want to just run the ball at you all day. What they really want to do is light up the scoreboard by throwing the ball down the field. Uh, I think that's true for Missouri and Oklahoma State. So eventually the Texas defensive coordinator was like, okay, if they, what they really want to do is throw it, and that's really how they're going to beat us, then we are going to dare them to beat us by running the ball 40, 50 times against a dime defense. And so he, you know, played the safeties way back, and then played that uh, Tampa two coverage. Yeah, I just noticed that's got to be one of the lowest scoring overtime. It was what thirteen to ten. That's got to be one of the lower scoring Oklahoma State games. Yeah, they, they Texas took away the deep pass, and uh, from that point on, they were like, "Well, this worked." And if Oklahoma State can't run on us, then I wonder if anyone else can. And so from then on, Texas started using that as their main strategy, and they they diversified it a little bit. But that became like the core philosophy was. Three two six dime package. Elliott playing as a robber, just daring people to run on Texas's like a four or five man box at times. They didn't give up very many deep passing plays after they started doing that. Say for a couple here or there, where like maybe a safety fell down. Mm-hmm. And later in the year, uh, Texas played West Virginia, who of course runs you know an air raid uh, from Holgerson and uh, Will Greer. I'm not sure was Will Greer playing in that game. He was until he snapped his finger like a twig that was the game diving for the goal line yeah Yeah. and uh guys were very successful in that game defensively as well uh i guess my question would be without deshaun elliott who was uh declared early for the nfl is not playing uh and malik jefferson all world linebacker malik jefferson is questionable with a toe injury i believe uh how um how replicable do you think that defensive scheme will be those are pretty incredible talents tough guys to replace who are the next guys up uh deshaun elliott i don't think is going to be that big a deal to replace because um, the role he was playing, like I've said, was basically like sea ball, hit ball. Mm-hmm. He he does have some sticky fingers. I don't know if they're going to get a guy in that spot that is quite has the same kind of ball skills he does playing the ball in the air. So that could be a loss for Texas. But in, t- in terms of getting a guy in there that can uh, fly downhill and stuff the run, you know, Texas is not short on big athletic safeties that could probably do that pretty well. Malik Jefferson is the much bigger deal because they were depending on being able to stop opposing teams run games without loading the box. And they were able to get away with that because nose tackle Puna Ford is really, really good. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe the most underrated player in the big 12 and he will play. And then Malik Jefferson was behind him. So teams would struggle to uh, keep Puna blocked, especially without double teaming him. And then Malik Jefferson would just like fly to the ball so losing Malik could be a really big deal for Texas. I, I don't think he's going to play. Uh, he does have a turf toe. I, I mean, he was playing on it at the end of the year. So the idea that he couldn't play on it in the bowl game is pretty sketchy. I, I think what's really going on is he's not sure if he wants to risk uh, an injury and hurt his draft status. Right. Uh, we got a, a question about um, uh, a listener question from uh, 
uh, Timo on Twitter. Uh, when Mizzou played Arkansas in the Cotton Bowl in 2007, uh, the Razorbacks <laughs> were supposed were so focused on stopping Chase Daniel and Jeremy Macklin that the passing offense that gashed them with Tony Temple. Do you think that it's a possibility in this game, especially with all the people out, especially since we've heard uh, Mizzou's sophomore running back Demaria Crockett is practicing? Uh, you, do you think it's possible that maybe that's kind of a, a scenario? Yeah. Um, so I mean, that was that was what Texas was did against. Uh, Oklahoma State dared Oklahoma State to beat them with the run game and they couldn't you could see them being like let's just take away these deep shots with Drew Locke and see if Missouri Missouri will run the ball enough to beat us but losing Malik makes that a little more complicated so I wonder if um, it just it kind of depends on how much the staff is investing in this game and how seriously they're taking it but they might um try to show a really conservative pass defense and then sneak guys in um, and try to like fool Drew Locke. I, I kinda, that's, that's what I'm expecting to happen is to try and trick Drew Locke into running the ball into numbers. Mm-hmm. But we'll see. I, I think that uh, I, I could see it breaking either way, honestly. I could see Missouri, Texas daring Missouri to pound them with the run game and then Missouri obliging and then Texas being like, oh <laughs> now we're in trouble and i could see texas trying to fool missouri and then getting caught and beat deep um or i could see them i mean i don't i don't know what bull prep has been like on the missouri side and how lasered in focused drew lock and everybody right. is with all this stuff going on like is drew lock going to be ready to diagnose time coverages which he's probably never done all year and and uh and see through texas's disguises you know, and there's also a chance that Texas will mix things up without Malik Jefferson and just like totally overhaul their defense and try something, throw something new at him. And how prepared is Drew Lock going to be to deal with that? So I could see it going that way too, where Texas just kind of has Drew Lock on the run all day and nothing works. Right. One of the big questions for uh, Missouri fans it, right now with Josh Heupel leaving is who's calling the plays for Missouri during the bowl game. And there's a lot of speculation that, um, that uh, Missouri will – have an offensive coordinator before the bowl game, but we're still not really sure who it is. I don't know that it matters. I think Drew Locke calls the plays as it is anyway. I mean, he, he they give him the formation, and then in each formation he has like three checks, and then he just figures out where the defense is sending numbers, and then he throws the ball not there. Yeah, I mean, he's basically like a mailroom clerk in the offense. He's like he has the package. I mean, and he looks and sees where it's supposed to go to, and then delivers the package to that place. I mean, it's not like they're calling these like yeah. very intricate offensive sets that he has to that that you have to have Josh Heupel there. You know, looking at the printouts every single play and being like, "Well, gee, the you know the safety shading more to the field side. I think we should call it." No, it's just like. All right, now hurry to the line. Now it's um, Jamon's running a uh, post. Emmanuel's running a go. Okoyeba's slipping out of the backfield, and see how many guys are there. And so, mm-hmm. this is this is how these spread offenses work nowadays. I, people get so lost in the in the deal of like, oh, the play sucks, the play caller sucks, the offensive coordinator has to go, because <laughs> that's like the, that's the default uh, fan reaction when anything's right. not going right. But it's like the offensive coordinators are not. I mean. They'll, they'll like convene with the quarterback and, and the sideline, but the key with your offensive coordinator these days in these spread offenses is how well are they teaching the quarterback to just do it for himself? Yeah. But then that also raises the question for you guys is, um, does Drew Locke have someone that's helping him pour through Texas film right now? Or is he on his own? <laughs> yeah, that's a question we all kind of have to, yeah, we all kind of wonder about ourselves. I know. I mean, he doesn't really have a quarterbacks coach right now, right? <laughs> yeah, because Heupel was the was the offense coordinator and quarterbacks coaches, and and I mean, we've got a couple of guys on staff who've kind of done some of the similar things, but uh, it's got to be a, a bit of a weird mixing up the routine of having one guy talking to you and then changing to another guy, even with extra weeks of practice or extra time to practice. You know, it's got to be a little bit of an odd uh, scenario for him. Both both teams have a lot of questions about how seriously are they taking this game and how much prep are they putting in? It could be one or it could be both or it could be neither. On the other side of the ball, when Texas has the ball, it seems that your offense, uh, statistically speaking again, has been kind of slow and methodical, not very explosive at all. At the same time, not very efficient. Um, Missouri's biggest weakness is allowing home run plays, uh, especially on the ground. That was definitely a big issue early in the year. 
Uh, but I'm not sure Texas has that in the offense this year. Yeah, they're, they're not very good. <laughs> they, uh, the, the lowdown is basically like um, they designed the offense mostly for Shane Michelle, mostly to like run the ball and then take some shots throwing it and kind of ease Bouchelle and the receivers into the passing game. And then uh, the only established reliable tight end that wasn't either a transfer from Syracuse or a true freshman got hurt in fall camp for the year. And then the guy that the guy that had just won the starting right tackle job over some pretty weak competition uh, got hurt for the year in bull camp in fall camp. Uh, although he might actually be finally healthy and play in this game. And then the third game of the year, the left tackle, who was an All-American, went out for the year. You had like you had one good tackle on the team and one guy that was like, maybe this guy will be good too. And then they were both gone. Mm. And, and then it was like a redshirt freshman that was projected at guard and was really struggling playing one tackle spot. And then the other tackle spot was a, a true freshman that was like 270 pounds or this big, tall 6'10 senior that should never have been on scholarship at Texas. Because <laughs> he was just too limited. I mean, he's a he's like a good kid, hard worker, but like he was a project from a previous offensive line coach that thought sure. maybe he could make something out of him, and then he just ended up being the only guy left. Um, they ended up having to play this guy inside that was like maybe six foot two eighty, who like if he was one on one with a defensive lineman of any caliber at all, he was getting whipped. Shane Michelle, the quarterback, was getting hurt. Uh, they were playing the true freshman, Sam Ellinger. He would make some plays because he's a sensational talent, but he would also make some mistakes. Then he would get hurt because he plays like a linebacker. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, every time I've seen him play, every time I've seen Sam Ellinger play, it seems like he's out there like trying to truck some dude. And I'm like, but yeah. you're the quarterback. You know, like you got to watch that shoulder, but you know. He's pretty fun. He's going to have to learn to pick his spots, but it, he's pretty fun. With all that offensive line injuries, it actually sounds a lot like 2012 Missouri's first year in the SEC where they were starting walk-ons against Alabama and things like that. I was just thinking that. Golly. Yeah. No Alabama on our schedule at least, but um, it was not dissimilar from that. So do you think Texas has any uh, wrinkles, any tricks up their sleeve offensively that they might use to punish, you know, kind of a susceptible, uh, over-aggressive at times uh, Missouri defense? Uh, they usually have a couple. I, I think y'all had – um, just chatting with you guys earlier, y'all, y'all had noted that they like to throw passes to Sam Ellinger. Yeah. Um, Seems like I've seen that every time. <laughs> it's, I mean, honestly, the, the best thing they have going for them on offense is um, either Sam Ellinger scrambling or Sam Ellinger catching a reverse pass. It's pretty sustainable. <laughs> that seems like the, the ideal offense to me. I don't know. Like. <laughs> so I'm, they'll probably have a couple. It, it comes back to that game of bull game prep though, that we'll, that I guess we'll touch on later. How much, how much is Texas putting in for this game? But I would, I would, I bet they'll have a couple trick plays. Maybe they'll have something off the Ellinger pass. I don't know. So uh, at the time that we're recording right now, Missouri is in the market for, uh, you know, a quarterback coach and an offensive coordinator. Uh, there have been some different rumors. Uh, the main category, the two main categories are higher are promoting from within for stability. Um, tight ends coach, Joe John Finley, who, uh, former Oklahoma Sooner, uh, maybe Andy Hill, something like that. Uh, actually, Finley will be calling the plays in the bowl game, I believe, is the plan right now. Maybe a audition. Is he not following Hypel ultimately? Well, I think that's uh, the point of contention right now. I think basically it's like make me OC or, or I'm starting. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Is this kind of an audition, David, for Finley as a play caller? I guess it could be, but I feel like his audition should be the last two years making Albert Okwebenom into a second-team All-SEC tight end, and World Beater is a pretty good audition for him. I mean, I I don't want to trash on Josh Heupel because he's done really good things with his offense, but I feel like his utility was more in building the foundation and getting it going. And right now, if Drew Locke stays, it can run itself. So I really don't see the point of hiring some big-name offensive coordinator if you just really need a a manager to come in and be like – I mean, if Drew Locke's back next year and you've got nine other starters back, like why do you need to pay somebody $800,000 to be a big-name, splashy offensive coordinator hire when it's going to run itself? So, I mean, Mm -hmm. I feel like the the – smarter, more effective, 
effective move would be to keep a really good young coach and recruiter like Joe John Finley in and make him offensive coordinator. And if he has like play calling hiccups for the first year, it's not going to matter. Like the plays aren't going to (laughs) matter next year at all. So I just don't, I think that's the pretty, I think that's the best move to make. I don't know if they're going to make it though, because I think the fan base is kind of clamoring for a, you know, a young gun hire from somewhere else who's putting up a lot of yards at North Texas or South Florida or some other directional school. But I think the most, (laughs) I think the most, (laughs) The, well, the South Florida guy, at least, is running the same system. Right, yeah. <laughs> but I think the one that makes the most sense is your backyard, because I really do, I mean, like, if, unless Joe John Finley just, like, loves Columbia for some, you know, loves Columbia more than his <laughs> own career, I think he's gone if you don't make him offensive coordinator, and I think that would be a mistake to let him go. <laughs> yeah, if I can interject real quick, because I think it, we all were scratching our heads when Hypo left and took Glenn Ellerby as the offensive mm-hmm. uh, line coach to UCF, but they haven't actually announced an offensive coordinator. So there's this kind of <laughs> speculation that maybe possibly Finley leaves. Is that, is that kind of what we're hitting at right now? I, to take- I, I always stress this when I make these guesses because people ask me as if I know anything, I don't know anything. Like I'm not, <laughs> I don't cover the team anymore. All these are just educated guesses. I mean, the LRB situation with me, the fact that <clears throat> he's been announced as offensive line coach, but they haven't announced an OC yet. It seems to me as if, Heupel's leaving the opportunity open for Finley to follow him as well if Odom's not ready to make him offensive coordinator. And then he can make Finley a sort of passing game coordinator and LRB a run game coordinator type like (laughs) thing over at UCF. And then maybe if Finley doesn't follow him, if Odom does make him coordinator here, then maybe he gives LRB the offensive coordinator title or something like that. So, I mean, that's, again, with no inside information. (laughs) This is my guess about the, the situation. Do the other staff like working with Odom? <laughs> it's been a, it's been a pet topic of this. this it show. depends. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, we've had how many guys leave in various directions, mm-hmm. right? Like six, you know. So it's kind of a it's a it's an interesting question. They've they've fired what two? They've had two guys kind of leave for lateral positions and two guys kind of leave for promotions. So I think. I think if you're an offensive coach, you really don't interact with him all that much. I feel like he's the dad who's right. like on the road for his job all the time and then comes home every two weeks with like a pennant from whatever town he's in. He's like, hey, buddy, how you doing? And like tussles your hair. <laughs> might be speaking from experience <laughs> or maybe I'm not. Um, but so, I mean, I feel like offensive coaches aren't around him enough to really get the positive or negative Barry Odom experience. I think if you're on defense, you have very definitive opinions of him one way or the other. Like you're probably – if you're – if you're Ryan Walters, you'll love him. If you're Brick right. Haley, I feel like you love him too. If you're Brian Odom, you love him. Um, if you're DeMonte Cuss, uh, Greg Brown, Jackie Ship, you yeah. probably hate him. So I think um, th- if you're a defensive coach, you're around him enough that you develop a definitive opinion of him. And I think it's about, split about 50-50 right now. If you're an offensive coach, I don't think you just, I don't think you see him all that much except in the staff room getting coffee or something like that. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of talk about who who could possibly be in, and we we might find out sooner or later. But uh, do you have any takes about Sterling Gilbert or Graham Harrell as, uh, or I guess Sterling Gilbert as an offense coordinator? Gilbert would be a good fit for continuity. Um, he's done install for the last like every he's like at a new job like every year. Okay, yeah. So every year he's just installing the same offense. Um. I do wonder what it looks like for him to try and take the next step with this offense. Like he's going to arrive and it's going to be like, okay, so Drew, so this is how this works. And then Drew's going to be like, yeah, I already know. So where do we, where do we go next? Where do we go next? And so um, it's possible that it'll turn out that he's got like all these ideas about what comes next that he's never been able to instill. And it's also possible that uh, he doesn't. (laughs) So, but that would be an interesting one. Could definitely do worse. I just want, it was, it was weird to me that they hired the O-line coach before they hired the coordinator because I always thought that if you were if you're going to if especially if you were a defensive coach that just wanted to be hands off, I always thought the earth thing was going to be like, well, I'm going to get my coordinator and he's going to get his guys in and then we're going to go. But I mean, whoever the coordinator is going to be doesn't have any guys really. I mean, the the rest of the You're talking about Missouri or are you talking about Missouri? Yeah. Yeah, Missouri Missouri just hired uh the Florida. offensive line coach from Florida last year, Brad Davis, uh, I believe. See now, sometimes like your defensive coach is like, all I know is I want to be tough. 
I want the offense to be tough and we're going to run the ball. So like sometimes you'll see like the defensive minded coach will like, sometimes they're like hands off, but sometimes they're like, um, they'll like, well, I want this and I want this. And then you guys make it work. Like Charlie, Charlie Strong did that. And it did not, did not work at all. Trying to try to mix match some some puzzle pieces that maybe yeah come he's from like I'm gonna hire a top offensive line coach and this quarterback coach that I had at Louisville and then they're gonna make it work and then they didn't make it work and then he hired two other guys with offensive coordinator experience or potential and then stuck them in the room and then said okay now the four of you make it work and then it didn't work right now there's a lot of a lot of people on both sides of this uh, Barry Odom. Uh, coaching decision-making uh, argument because there are people who can point to like, Oh, look, he, you know, he hired these guys who are obviously successful. And then he also hired some guys who kind of washed out. So it's going to be really interesting to see how he handles transition because one of the things that Missouri is not familiar with uh, Missouri fans are not familiar with is a lot of turnover uh, under the previous uh, coaching staff, Gary Pinkle, there was very little. And now mm-hmm. there's been, you know, half a dozen already in the first two years of Odom's tenure. And maybe that speaks to uh, personal relationship conflicts or professional interests, but uh, it's also the name of the game a little bit, just in college yeah, football exactly. in general. Yeah. yeah so uh, if you want a guy who has connections, Odom is a guy, he, he knows a lot of people in the coaching world. So you're kind of hoping that he can finally hit on some guys who bring the whole package, but uh, yeah, it's going to be a, it's going to be well, an interesting with thing. The, with the new offensive line hire, he kind of, he went the same route as the Glenn Ellerby hire, really, um, because I remember in the press release announcing Ellerby, like uh, Odom said something about, like, I played his Arkansas State offensive lines, and they were always really tough. Then you look back, and, uh, like, Missouri just obliterated the Arkansas State. <laughs> like, they had, like, 12 tackles for loss or something. And then, so he hires the Florida <laughs> guy the same year that Missouri just, you know. Crushes them, yeah. Crushes Florida. So I, I, I guess – it raised an eyebrow when Ellerby was hired, but he was a really good hire. So maybe this guy will be a really good hire. So like, you know, Odom vanquishes his enemies and then like picks, <laughs> picks, picks uh, at the carcasses of them and uh, bring, <laughs> brings them along into his army. I don't know. I guess that, that's kind of like when um, uh, Doc Rivers is made coach and GM of the Clippers. And then he started, hi- <laughs> he started signing all these players yeah. <laughs> that he battled with back in the day with the Celtics. <laughs> I remember that guy gave us trouble 10 years ago, so let's get The 2007 All-Star team was really good in 2015, right? One of the things that we really pushed on this uh, podcast and uh, online was uh, the talk about Terry Beckner. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all, but how he he should go pro. He's a junior, and he should uh, go to the NFL and get paid. But then Missouri, one of the biggest recruiting coups that Missouri's coaching staff made was getting him to come back for his senior year. Let's uh, let's record an episode real quick of our favorite sub podcast talking about Beckner. Uh, the big man announced he's coming back for his senior season. Uh, Ian, how scared are you of Terry Beckner? I'm pretty scared of uh, any defensive lineman with a pulse. <laughs> <laughs> well, he has that. <laughs> yeah, he sounds like uh, he's pretty dangerous. I looked at his numbers and I thought, I mean, I, I haven't even really watched him that much, so I thought he was like a defensive end. <laughs> oh, really? But, when I looked at his numbers and I was like, yeah, well, you know, seven sacks, you know, okay. Like he'll probably eat us alive, but I don't know if he's that great. And then I saw he was 290 pounds and I was like, Oh no. (laughs) We're we're big fans of Beckner. We we're, uh, we're pretty, we are happy to be wrong about Beckner, about the fact that he's coming back for a senior. So yeah, from on October on, we were counting him as you know an NFL pick. Yeah, sounds like all your offensive linemen are not up to this, but uh, yeah, they're probably, probably also talking about Beckner. <laughs> yeah, that gives me a chance to also uh, talk about one of these guys that we met, or two of these guys that we talked about at the beginning of the year when we had you on, um, Texas defensive tackle transfer Jordan Elliott and Texas uh, defensive line coach Brick Haley. Elliott obviously won't be playing this year. Um, they're really trying to promote or they're trying to push him as, you know, being the future. Um, uh, but you st- you had some uh, concerns about his his play when he was at Texas. Not really his play so much. His play was actually really good. More just, you know, I think the term that people like to use now is football character. Okay. It's kind of a weird term. <laughs> yeah. But I think it basically means like, are you spending your off nights in the film room or at the local watering hole? Uh, watering hole. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but he's, uh, they've been uh, post- posting videos on Twitter of him beating the crap out of some bags and, you know, making it seem like he's yeah. 
Those are my favorite videos. How much does he weigh? I guess that's the real question. Three fifteen, I think it says that. That's a good yeah. sign. That's a good sign. There was a there was a end of season uh, ceremonies where they you know they honored him for being like the 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 workout warrior or the 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 weight room warrior or something like that. And I thought, oh, good for oh, him. well, that yeah, that's good. <laughs> you know, that's a good sign, right? Like that's kind of a it's kind of addresses the concerns that we had about him. But okay, uh, Ian, both of these coaches are in their first bowl games at their current jobs. But um, typically, bowls are are seen as maybe disconnected from the regular season, really kind of exhibition games between seasons. I know for Missouri fans, I get the sense that there is more at stake in terms of the continuity and direction of the program. How are Texas fans viewing this bowl game and you know this this past season? Texas fans are pretty starved for success, and they're six and six right now. And Texas has not had a winning season since Mac left. For the fans, it actually matters to get to seven and six rather than six and seven. That's like that's a big deal. Herman is, I think, a little bit aloof to the um, strain on Texas fans from sucking for so long. He even joked with the reporters once, like reporters asked him some question about Texas struggling against uh, Iowa State and Ames, and he could almost tell he was like, "Really though? Like, are you guys?" Really- so he, he actually told the reporters, he's like, you guys sound like you have a post-traumatic stress disorder or something. Oh, I remember that comment. Yeah. And it's like, and it's like, yes, they do. <laughs> Please, you need to be aware of this for your own good. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about this early signing day. Right now, all these coaches, especially Herman, because he's got like the number two class right now or something. So all he really cares about right now is putting together his signing day class. And I don't know how much he cares about being seven and six versus six and seven. Interesting. Even though the fans do. And like he said in his press conference the other day that it's been like him and the coordinators running the show at practice. And then all the assistant coaches are gone like recruiting. And so like this is, I'm surely going to become a topic at some point, but basically early signing day is just horrible for bulls. So uh, yeah. So they've just been like scrimmaging and working on big picture stuff um i think this next week is when they're actually going to start focusing on missouri and i so it's not going to be like i i just don't know what how intentional they're going to be you know like what they really wanted was just to get some film of the younger guys get the younger guys reps and practice so they've basically just been scrimmaging all day every day for texas fans this game is uniquely important because of the the win loss the being above or below 500 deal. But for the coaches and for the program, I don't know if they care at all. I guess that answers my, one of my questions here at the end, which is going to be, you know, Tom Herman has this big game rep, uh, you know, big game coach from, uh, you know, a couple top five upsets when he was at Houston, uh, Florida state, Oklahoma, and, uh, Louisville, uh, of course, um, helping Ohio state win the national championship. So he's got this big game rep, uh, at the same time, you have Barry Odom on the other sideline who kind of turned his tenure around with the six-game winning streak against mostly overmatched teams. Uh, this bowl is easily the biggest test for Odom. Uh, for Herman, does this fall under the big-game ledger? And it sounds like no, not at all. Probably not. When he was at Houston, they whipped up on Florida State in a bowl game. Right. That was very different. Like Houston had everything to gain from mm-hmm. making a big showing in that game. And he wasn't trying to put together his class simultaneously, you know. So um, it's kind of like, um, you know, Bob Stoops was big game Bob. Yeah. But Oklahoma would lose their bowl games all the time. <laughs> and I, it's, I think I honestly think it was for Bob Stoops probably the same. Like Bob Stoops was like to achieve our goals as a Oklahoma program and to maintain my place as the head coach at Oklahoma, I need to take the Texas game very seriously. And I need to, you know, take this game very seriously. And if Clemson... Um, beats us by 40 points in a meaningless exhibition bowl than whatever. I, I think Herman's probably pretty similar. Yeah, that's kind of what's happened with bowl games that aren't part of the playoffs is they're really exhibition games that you can ascribe or not as much as you want in terms of their correlation with the previous season or the future season because they're they're really, like I said before, really disconnected from what's going on and even more so now with the coach – with the um, early signing period being, you know, just stuck right in the middle of a lot of teams practices. So um, I think, I think you're going to see a little bit of uh, 
a little bit of confusion, but uh, there's also, you know, like you said, there, there's some, you know, they're still practicing. They're still, but it's going to be less of a focused, intense, you know, like we have to go out and win this game and more of a like, well, we're going to put our best guys out there and let some guys, some younger guys get some playing time. And what happens is going to happen. We got to get our recruits in, you know? Okay. So we got to do this. We need, we need a prediction. We need a prediction again. It's funny. I haven't even really thought about it. All right, Tom Herman. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take Texas. I think all the turmoil around Missouri's program probably makes them more likely to be the team that lays an egg just with all the coaching transition and whatever else uh, offensive coordinator leveraging their potential offensive coordinator leveraging for the payout. That sounds promising for Texas's defense. And uh, I also, Texas is going to throw a uh, defense at Locke and Missouri that you haven't faced this year. That's a problem. Everybody's like, stop the run, stop the run. That's like the mo- the mantra of every defensive coordinator. And it was the mantra for Todd Orlando up until like halfway through the season. And then he, you know, he figured out, you know, you have to stop the pass and dare these teams to run. And then Texas was just shutting people down. I don't think Missouri has faced a team this year that would go in on like dime defense and take away the deep pass, if nothing else, and those kinds of tactics. And I think Texas will will do that to the extent they can. It might be a little bit hard with that um, tied in with an impossible Nigerian name that I'm not going to try to pronounce. Okway Boonham. Well, you got pretty much you got better than the SEC announcers do. So Oscar doesn't even try to say it anymore. I I just say Albert Okay. I can't do it. David can do it. Okway Boonham. <laughs> so uh, I think I need to hear that like five more times. You can, can make me say his last name your ringtone. That would help. Trust me, I've listened to it every day. Yeah. every episode. I still haven't got it yet. So Texas hasn't had to quite deal with that so that might complicate it maybe missouri will be able to yeah. run on him and just gash him but we'll see david i want to hear an, i want to hear a prediction from you well it's i guess as a corollary to the prediction it's it's interesting to hear ian talk about texas and or like well not texas not but like tom herman not caring about the bowl game and going big picture because i feel like that's where missouri should want to be as a program yeah. like we're seven and five. We're playing a team that's six and six. It doesn't really matter. We're thinking about the future, but that's not where they are as a program. Because you still got fans dredging up that Delos Dodds quote from four years yep. ago, <laughs> and I mean, you still got Odom being like, "We're going to be only one of two teams ever to go from one and five to eight and five. And you know, not discounting the fact that teams didn't even play thirteen games <laughs> until like ten years ago. I mean, it just seems like Mizzou cares about. Mizzou, care, Mizzou is at the stage of their program where they care about being the little guy and they care about like all this piddly stuff that they really shouldn't care about. Whereas I feel like they need to get a more Tom Herman enlightened big picture view of everything. Cause like it, you know, that I think they are putting a whole lot into this bowl game. I mean, I feel like they both Odom and the players and the fan base all really want this because, you know, the fans are still mad about the lost Dodds. Odom wants to be able to go into three-star house in Texas and be like, you're considered, you know, Texas didn't even look at you. Well, we just beat him in Houston, right. you know? So I don't, so I think he wants to have that card to play in recruits house. And I think they're putting so much into this bowl game that if they lose, it might be like low key devastating. Like they might, <laughs> they might try to play it off. Like, Oh, well we still had a good season anyway, but I feel like behind the scenes, it's just going to be like, we did all this and we still couldn't beat Texas. So, I mean, I feel like it's, it's more healthy for them to treat this the way that Tom Herman's treating it as, you know, I guess the Texas fans will be disappointed if Missouri wins, but I don't know that, you know, it's any skin off Tom Herman's nose that Missouri beat Texas in the advocare, whatever.com bad boy mowers. Houston Bowl. So, and I think that's the more healthy way to be approaching it. I mean, all that being said, when you're talking about predictions, I feel like Missouri hasn't faced a defense of Texas's caliber really since Georgia. Right. And I think Texas might even be more problematic for Missouri than Georgia. I think Texas is going to give Missouri more problems defensively uh, than any other team really they face this year. I think the the whole Missouri's defense is fixed narrative really got torn apart against Arkansas because Arkansas was just doing whatever they wanted against that defense in the last game of the year, which is all a long way of saying, I think that Texas is going to win like, I'll say 34 to 28. Um, 34 I, points. It's going to be a fun game. Is it going into triple overtime? You might be scoring some defensive touchdowns, let's be honest, though. <laughs> and I really think that, like, it shouldn't be that big of a deal if Texas beats Missouri, but I feel like a lot of people are going to get a big deal. And I feel like the, even the more 
reactionary of the bunch are going to be like, well, fire Odom, you know, <laughs> even though that's patently ridiculous. But so I guess I would just um, caution people that it's just one game and, you know, bowl games, really, they didn't even count the stats until like a decade ago. So just everybody calm down. If you win, hey, that's great. Don't go tweeting the DeLos Dodds quote a million times. That's they will. <laughs> Which Dodds quote is that? Uh, uh, Texas's bad years are better than Missouri's good years. <laughs> this is, and this is to my point again. Like, Ian, you're a person who follows this on a daily basis, and you're like, which Dodds quote is that? Every single Missouri fan has that, like, tattooed across their back. It's like, <laughs> like, let it go. You know, let it go. A guy said something bad about you one time, and still four years later, you're like, oh, we'll show that Dodds, who's probably, I don't know, off on his ranch or on his lake in his million-dollar boat not caring about you. So I don't, why do you care about him so much? Just... This, this actually hearing all this really makes me want Texas to beat Missouri. Uh, four years and four years ago, like Arkansas, you know, just destroyed us. And Charlie Strong's only bull. I think Texas had like a uh, hundred yards of offense on like, and most of it was on. Like, oh, I remember that, yeah. And then uh, afterwards, uh, Brett Bielema was like, it was borderline erotic. Uh, yeah. And so Texas fans yeah. just, just been stewing on that for years, just because it's like we had forgotten about Arkansas for the most part. And then we're like down and then they like, you know, it's like the bully goes to school and, and crutches or something. And then the little fat kid comes and kicks the crutches out and laughs at him. And the bully is like, Oh, I don't know, but I don't want, I'm not up for this. <laughs> so yeah, y'all will be like the, uh, the AV club kid coming over to push us down. So well, we, we started this with fat kids and we're ending it with fat kids, I guess. Well, they've been, I mean, we've been, we've been there. I don't know why I'm saying Missouri's been the, yeah, AV David, <laughs> David's joined the bandwagon. Missouri has been the AV club kid for the whole second half of the season. Cause you know, Florida and Tennessee oh, yeah. are yeah. obviously shadows of shadows of shadows of what they once were. But they, you know, as soon as Missouri beats the crud out of them, it's like two sec powers ground on foot. It's like, come on, really? <laughs> so yeah that's a that's a, a recurring theme in the second half yeah we don't we don't we're not too excited about taking any more losses like that or like that kansas loss last year where they rushed the field and they didn't even know how to rush the field wasn't that <laughs> <laughs> they were like scrambling around with confused looks on them like, well, what all 35 of them. texas is in danger of, of adopting that missouri mindset where like this game matters so much like we're like we, we could we we could regress yeah. back to that yeah that's a it's a warning missouri should be a cautionary <laughs> tale like football programs should be good enough to where they're worried about weightier things than the eight and five or seven and six in the independent Texas. Bowl. If you were worried about uh, David not dropping a a hot take that riled up Missouri fans, then uh, <laughs> then he's definitely he's doing that this uh, this end of this end of this episode because uh, I think a lot of Missouri fans are viewing this Texas game as kind of a closure for the whole departure for the SEC and for Texas kind of you know them holding Texas responsible for. Uh, what happened to the Big 12 and, you know, yes, they're perseverating on the whole uh, the lost Dodds quote. And I, I agree, David, that Missouri coaches and players and fans really need, you know, feel that they need to beat Texas as a statement win, even though Texas, even though if they beat Texas, they, all of their wins will come against teams that, with losing records uh, because it'll drop Texas to six and seven. And that will kind of invalidate their whole season in the sense that they haven't beat anybody, right? Like all their, all their big exactly. wins are against. Even if they beat Texas, they still will not have beaten any teams with winning <laughs> records this year. Yeah, it's a catch-22, exactly. So it's kind of a an interesting uh, dynamic there that uh, – I can't help but enjoy it. I'm going to love watching from a distance. I mean, I'd, I talk I talk to my wife about this. She's a Mizzou grad and a Mizzou fan. Missouri fans are just so stuck in the past, and I don't know what's gonna I don't know what's gonna like yank them into the present in the future because that's where they need to be looking. They need to be looking at the future. They don't need to be looking at DeLos Dodds quotes. And I don't know if maybe it's like I'm a fan of a football program, Northwestern, that has no past. So I don't know if like. I don't know if that's why I don't get caught up in the past so much. Like, you know, if we beat um, Minnesota this year, I'm not like, oh, take that, Minnesota. You were dragging us through the mud in the 80s, and now look at where we are. So, I mean, like, I don't – I just – I don't know. I guess it's a different kind of fandom, but I feel like it's a, it's a healthier 
more useful kind of fandom to be to let all of the past go and not care about this sec big 12 redemption arc and just be like it's over man you're getting so much more money now you're in a great place in you know financially uh your football team's playing real good like but it's still not going to matter if you beat texas or not because it's just a game dan i i don't know if you i don't know if you're if you're appreciating how much we've turned this prediction segment into like a just a uh, deep dive into the Missouri fan psyche as much as I am. Maybe like it's, it's pretty, we've gone off the rails in only the way that I think we can, but. Uh. No, I mean, I am a Missouri fan. Of course I went there, but I, you know, I was an outsider. I came from the East coast. So everything David is saying is I'm completely totally agree with the Missouri mindset. You know, I, I think it's, a portion of the fan base that is like born and bred into this and not, you know, the outsiders don't really have that same Missouri mindset. Picking the lost cause up again. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I feel that way with Kansas rivalry too. It's like they were, I mean, that every time I hear Kansas mentioned, it's like, well, the civil war, it's like, well, that was 170 (laughs) years ago and it didn't have to do with football or basketball or anything. Now this is where I disagree with David. Screw Kansas. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> okay we gotta we gotta wrap this up at some point guys um so so ian and david are both picking texas to win and i i don't know dan uh missouri 100 texas zero terry beckner 15 sacks <laughs> drew lock announces he's coming back awesome uh i i think that this game means a lot more to missouri uh everyone than it does to texas and therefore you know that's going to be the marginal edge in a very close but somewhat high scoring game so i kind of agree with the whole 34 31 kind of or you know something along those lines game the, the ideal game for texas would be uh uh overtime sam ellinger fourth and two stiff arms beckner to the ground yeah runs it in doesn't fumble <laughs> redemption is for the season that, yeah. that would be like our yeah. ideal ending okay so i'm hearing about the drew lock hearing about dan's drew lock prediction i'm using my prediction now what's going to happen is it's going to be a tight game drew lock's going to throw a game-winning touchdown pass on the last play of the game and after the receiver catches the touchdown he'll find a scroll embedded in the lining <laughs> sticking of the football and he'll take it out and he'll unveil it and he'll say i'm coming back and then everybody will go crazy. Yeah. So that's my new. Point. And then he'll plant a flag in the middle of Houston. You know, <laughs> that'll be. This is our yeah, exactly. Everybody will be like, "What's that flag? Is that what is that flag?" flag? And, everyone will be, and everyone will be like, "I don't know what the Missouri flag looks like." So. Is that a big M? Is that Michigan? Okay. Listeners, you can always jump in our mentions on Twitter at Zoology Pod. You can follow us on Facebook. I'd love it if you left us a, a review on iTunes. Um, Thanks again, Ian, for coming on. Uh, Ian, you can find him at SB Nation or at Inside Texas covering, uh, you know, obviously Texas Longhorns. Uh, Thanks for coming on, Ian. You bet. It was fun. Uh, I've been your host, Oscar. You can find me mostly on Twitter, but maybe not so much anymore. Uh, That's been Dan Keegan. Hey, thanks for listening. Thank you, Ian, for coming on. And that's been David Clicks Morrison. And you know, the the flaming bags of dog poo on my doorstep are really getting kind of old by now. So if we can just cut that out. Then if you would stop out. falling for it, maybe that's... <laughs> that's true. <laughs> oh, I got to put this out. Oh, not again. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Zoology.